0: This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. Today on the podcast, we're once again going to spend some time looking at the work of three proof-of-concept centers created by NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. One called Nexus New York, which is based upstate, and two here in Manhattan, which have been combined into an organization called PowerBridge. As we've heard before, a proof of concept center is a place where researchers from academia can learn how to take their ideas out of the lab and put them into the marketplace as actual commercial products. These centers were created by NYSERDA as a part of their mission to improve the way we here in New York produce and use energy encouraging the development of new clean technologies that will allow us to do more while causing less strain on the natural environment. In today's episode, we're going to continue looking at some of the fascinating and innovative work done by companies that were started at these proof-of-concept centers. Now, there's a famous old joke that goes, Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, today, we're going to look at two new companies that are, in fact, doing something about the weather. One that is finding new and better ways to predict the weather in big cities, resulting in the potential for real savings of both energy and money, and another that's finding new and better ways to harness the weather, specifically wind, to capture its clean, sustainable energy and put it to work. Let's start with the forecasters. Luis Ortiz is CEO of WeatherWatt, a company that completed the program at PowerBridge. He started out as a researcher, with a particular interest in the weather in big cities. Big cities are interesting meteorologically because they're places where, more than anywhere else, weather conditions are affected by both the natural forces of climate and the water cycle and so forth, and also the man-made environment of streets and
1: buildings. We know uh, that in cities like New York, uh, you know London, Beijing, uh, the city uh, has a very big impact. Basically the city uh, adds a sort of additional baseline to temperature compared to its surroundings. So cities are warmer than the surrounding rural areas. Usually people look at it as the weather affecting buildings. Uh, if it's a really warm day, they'll have to crank up the air conditioning and you know, to keep us from sweating and dying uh, inside these concrete and glass boxes. Uh, however, what people sometimes miss, or at least uh, general public sometimes miss, is that air conditioning is actually moving that heat from inside the building to outside. So there's so- that sort of connection uh, between the outside and the inside of a building where there's sort of like these feedbacks. Uh, The hotter it is outside, the more energy you need to expend to bring that heat from inside the building to outside. Uh, But that means that you're also adding to the heat outside as well.
0: And there's a bit of a vicious cycle here, because changes in weather also affect cities particularly dramatically,
1: because there are so many people in such a small area. So whenever something happens in a city, it's sort of amplified by that density of people living here. Uh, for example, if the there's Sandy, right? Uh, train stopped working for a week. How many millions and millions of dollars were lost, right? Or a heat wave hits. Uh, I, f- I forget the, the last really big one that really affected a lot of people. But, uh, you know, in, hospitalizations increase, you know, uh, by se- several uh, times, uh, two or three times. Uh, blackouts. Uh, there's a whole very large... Uh, sort of at risk, uh, or, or potential for risk, from these events.
0: So there seemed to be a real need here to better understand the unique meteorology of cities so better forecasts of dramatic weather events can be made. By paying special attention to the complex interactions of buildings and climate here in New York City, Mr. Ortiz and his colleagues were able to create forecasting models that are significantly better than any others currently
1: available. So we started uh, sort of improving on the model, on the weather model, and sort of uh, adding uh, all these capabilities. Uh, so what if, for example, water accumulates at the top of the buildings? Uh, what effect does that have when it, right after it rains? Uh, let's include these cooling towers that are, you know, sort of like small, little like little, building up this weather model, and including the effects of, of buildings. Uh, and then we discover that we are actually able to reproduce a lot of that variability uh, with our weather and building model. And we use that to feed our model, uh, which is very, very high resolution. Uh, it goes all the way to uh, a one kilometer resolution in the weather, uh, which is uh, I think the next highest resolution model uh, is 12 kilometers. Uh, So, you know, that's basically two points for New York City or three points for New York City. Whereas we have, I don't know, uh, several thousand points throughout New York City, metropolitan area.
0: And then something really interesting happened. Like with many companies that have gone through the programs of these proof-of-concept centers, a surprising way to commercialize this technology presented itself. They realized that by creating a more accurate projection of the weather by accounting for the temperature of buildings, They had also, more or less by accident, created a more accurate projection of the temperature of buildings based on the weather. They could forecast, better than anyone ever had been able to do before, exactly what the temperature surrounding a particular building would be on a particular day. And as they discovered, that's tremendously valuable information for the owners and managers of large
1: commercial buildings. Uh, It means... That we are able to tell a building uh, engineer or manager how much electricity their building is going to use uh, up to three or even more days ahead of time.
0: This might not seem like a big deal, but it is. And to understand why, you have to consider the scale of energy usage for a big commercial space. Those of us who only pay utilities on an apartment or a house are used to electric bills of no more than a couple hundred dollars a month. But for big buildings like New York City skyscrapers, the electric bill can quite easily be tens of thousands of dollars a month. And around half that cost is the price of keeping the building cool in the summer and warm in the winter. We're talking about a price tag of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just to keep the air conditioners running. And so naturally, almost all of these buildings are looking for ways to mitigate that cost by using less electricity.
1: Usually uh, building owners or buildings have uh, equipment that allows them to sort of get off the grid. Uh, For example, you can have a gas-powered chiller that you can use when you expect electricity to be more expensive. Um, However, you don't have that advanced knowledge. You don't know when to turn it on. Uh, Some buildings, depending on how sophisticated their team is, might have uh, what they call peak load management plans. Uh, Of course, they need to bring in the right people and and sort of put this plan into effect and maybe the morning off might not be lead enough time to to go into this. Uh, So that sort of extra lead time that we provide allows them to go and say, okay, Uh, Next Wednesday, we're going to turn off the escalators uh, and we're going to run only half the elevators, uh, that kind of stuff. Or we're gonna close the the blinds so that less solar uh, energy comes into the building.
0: And so WeatherWatt's forecasting system allows a building manager to accurately plan what to do about cooling and heating in advance. Rather than having to respond to conditions as they occur, or try to guess based on either forecasts for an entire region or some kind of historical data of what happened on a particular date in the past.
1: As far as I know, we're the only ones that go several days ahead. Uh, So existing services might hook up to your uh, meters or your smart meters uh, that are already hooked up in your building. And they might provide a uh, sort of a dashboard or some other window into uh, your buildings and give you some insight into that based on the real-time and historical. Sort of like a rear-view window. Um, and actually, uh, we did a test pilot last year, and uh, the guy, this is uh, I mean, uh, more or less what he said, the other things that I'm paying for right now are giving us a rear-view uh, of what's happening in our building, but you guys are giving us sort of the look ahead, and that's something that I haven't seen
0: So that system provides an innovative way to save electricity by anticipating weather conditions. But what about actually using the weather to create electricity? That's where our next company, Ducted Turbine International, or DTI, comes in. Wind power is not a new idea, of course. Don Quixote was tilting at windmills 400 years ago, after all. And people have been using what are called turbines, basically windmills that capture the energy of the wind and turn it into electricity, rather than directly into mechanical work, since around 1900. Here's Dr. Ken Visser, an associate professor of mechanical and aeronautic engineering at Clarkson University in upstate New York. He's also DTI's chief technical officer.
2: So a turbine, or a wind turbine, as we call them, is essentially a device that extracts energy in the wind and converts it from uh, uh, moving air or sometimes moving water, if we have a hydro turbine, into electrical energy that then we can uh, use in a variety of ways, obviously either from charging a battery to um, putting it back into the grid.
0: All turbines are not created equal, though. To begin with, some turbines are drag-driven, meaning that they rely only on the brute force of the wind to turn them while others are lift-driven, meaning that their blades are shaped and angled in a certain way to capture the force of the wind the way an airplane wing does, providing much more power for the same amount of wind force received.
2: You can have a drag-driven wind turbine, and if you think of those little cup anemometers that are used to measure wind speed, sometimes at uh, weather stations, well, a pinwheel is a good example too, yeah. yeah. And so the wind essentially pushes that, and and because it pushes it at an angle or something like that, it tends to move it around its axis, and that's a drag-driven machine. On the other hand, a lift-driven machine uses a surface that's aerodynamically designed to generate lift, just like an airplane wing. And if you do that correctly, you will generate much more torque, which is used to drive the generator, than you would with a drag-driven machine.
0: But what if you could get even more out of a lift-driven turbine? That's exactly what the team at DTI is trying to do. As the name suggests, Ducted Turbines International is using ducts, basically round tubes that completely surround the blades of the turbine, like the casing that surrounds the propellers in a jet engine. And these ducts have a lot of advantages.
2: If we put a duct around a rotor, it improves the power performance. It improves the energy capture, and that's great. And there's a couple other things that it does, too. It it can help with the aerodynamics of the rotor. Really, what we're doing now is we're grabbing that duct actually acts like a pump and draws in more air and runs it through the rotor. Because of the duct, the rotor now sees a larger amount of wind.
0: And now that the rotor is seeing more wind... It's in turn able to generate more energy.
2: And so to give you an example, we built a prototype last November that we tested up at the University of Waterloo. And for that prototype, our rotor diameter was 2.5 meters because we wanted to have the same size as a commercially available turbine that you can buy today. And at a given wind speed, I'll just say 9 meters a second, that commercial turbine would put out about 750 watts. When we put our duct around our rotor blades of the same size, the output jumped to about 1950 watts. So when you, when you then uh, measure the power curve that resulted from that wind turbine, the amount of energy, the annual energy produced, is more than twice that of a commercial turbine.
0: With those kinds of results, it's no surprise that people have tried to make ducted turbines a viable commercial enterprise in the past. But they've always run up against a seemingly insurmountable problem. As amazing as the increased output of these kinds of machines is, it's never outpaced the increased cost of building them.
2: I think the earliest reference I found was about 1920. Somebody tried this. And for various reasons over the years, uh, it's proved to be uneconomically viable. Uh, there's an added cost to put that onto the machine. There's an added weight that goes onto the machine. There's an added drag force. In other words, I don't just have the drag of the rotor sitting there anymore, I have the drag of this wind duct thing sitting up there. And I have to account for those in the structural loading on the tower, in the structural loading on the foundation. Uh, we can generate twice the amount of energy, but if it costs twice as much to make something like this, well, we haven't gained anything. I might as well just put two turbines up there.
0: So that's really the challenge that DTI is facing. Not, how do we design a more efficient wind turbine, but rather, how do we design a more efficient wind turbine that's inexpensive enough for someone to actually want to buy? That's exactly the kind of question that proof-of-concept center training encourages scientists and engineers to learn how to answer. And Dr. Visser's team is approaching it from several angles.
2: We can probably, for a number of reasons, reduce the cost um, compared to a turbine that would generate the equivalent amount of energy. Because our design is lighter, we need a smaller generator to do the same thing and we won't need a crane to put it up. So the installation costs tend to go down.
0: They're also increasing the market benefit of their designs by concentrating not on the kind of large turbines that are used for the huge wind farms that supply municipal power grids, but rather the kind of smaller turbines that might be used to power a single building or even a single home.
2: It's important to understand that when we speak of efficiency on a wind turbine, which applies to normal open rotor turbines, it's the amount of power that the wind turbine sees in the wind stream, which is equal to, and a little bit of math here, but it's a simple formula: one half times the air density times the area swept out by the rotor multiplied by the velocity cubed. That's the most. That's the maximum amount of power in that tube of air that that wind turbine sees. And then we take a look, and then we take the power that the wind turbine actually gets. And we divide by that amount, and lo and behold, we can't get above, uh, well, 52 or 53 percent. The theoretical max is 59 percent. But small turbines aren't near as efficient, you know, they're maybe on the anywhere from 25 to 35 percent efficient. So the bar
0: is much lower to improving efficiency. But there's significant work to be done still on price reduction, because the current market cost of a small wind turbine is really quite high. One big enough to power your house would cost around $65,000. So at, say, $200 per month to get your power from the grid, it would take 27 years to earn back that initial investment.
2: When most people hear numbers like that, the capital cost just sets them back, and they're just like, well, I'll just plug into the wall. So uh, we've talked to a lot of people and asked them, you know, um, what if you could get your money back in five years? Oh, well, five years. five years, yeah, okay. And we get a very positive response. So, So that's our target.
0: And what really makes both of these companies special is a quality shared by so many that have come through the PowerBridge and Nexus New York programs. They are really trying to operate on several levels at the same time. Making products that are advancing the current standards of technology, making a viable commercial impact, and also doing real good in the world. Here's Mr.
1: Ortiz again, followed by Dr. Visser. The net impact of reducing the energy use, if you sort of scale that to a whole city, uh, then that means the power plants, for example, will have to produce less energy uh, to keep up with the demand of the city. Uh, So that's, you know, whatever pollution and and heating up of the water that happens from that will be immediately reduced.
2: Well I'm really excited about uh, making this technology, essentially transferring this technology from a university environment to a commercial environment because I really believe that if we can get this out there in the world as a commercially viable product it will change the face of small wind, the small wind industry.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, associate producer, Carrie Kasten. Special thanks to the experts who we interviewed, Louise Ortiz of WeatherWatt and Dr. Ken Visser of Ducted Turbines International. To learn more about the Nexus and PowerBridge programs, visit www.nexus-ny.org and www.powerbridgeny.org. For more information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media at NYASciences on Twitter and Instagram or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.